What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, it's been a while since we talked about our old mate Jason Furman. Uh, has he paid his bills? He has paid his bills. Oh, okay. So we should record him a new ad. Surely he has a website now? Uh, no, he does not. Oh, uh, maybe he's provided a direct phone number people can order through? Uh, I'll just check. Nope, no phone number either. I like the way that you're actually pretending to look whether he has provided <laughs> <laughs> So if you want to get in contact with Jason, you still have to do that through Facebook. It's uh, Einswick Dog Quip, E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K. Jason can hook you up with all the things you might be interested in getting, the Firepaw Mills, which a lot of people are getting and loving. Mm. He has Herm Springer products, if you're into those. Yep. He has balls, leashes, tugs. Yep. And at the moment, he has a 10% discount on all Canine USA products. That's pretty cool. And I believe he's got a lot of the other stuff that you can use to compete in GRC as well, such as the sleds and the Mm -hmm. spring poles. Yeah, that's correct. He sure does. Well, that's great. That's a sport taking the world by storm. Yeah. So if you're into that or you just like training your dog, having a good time, have a chat to Jason on Facebook at Einswick Dog Quip. Yep. Send him an inventory via Messenger and get your gear. (laughs) (laughs) Get a website, Jason, you bozo. Yeah. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Glenn Cook, and once again, joined in studio is my non-regular host, but always welcome guest, Bertie O'Sheedy. Hello. Mrs. Bertie O'Sheedy. It's Mrs., isn't it? Yes. I'm married. You're married. I'm married. To a lovely Dan. I love my husband, yes. I know. And he's a reason why I can be here, because he helps me so much. Isn't so. he a wonderful man? He is. So, hello, TCP family. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Very well, thank you. Pat's still away. So, while the Pat's away, Glenn and the Bertie will play. <laughs> that sounded really wrong. <laughs> I'm going to still leave it in yeah. there, though. <laughs> okay, I was going to say please delete it, but okay. <laughs> yeah, see, Pat would have censored it. He would have. He would have he said, would have oh, no, no, take that out. Um, That's not funny. Because Pat's so cool when he sits opposite of me. He gives me the look and then I know I'm on track or he gives me the not so good look. <laughs> so, yeah. How have you been? Good. good. How have you been? Very well. I had a beautiful lunch. Wow. So did we. Good. Considering we had one together. Yes. <laughs> so this is a good follow-on from our last week conversation where we were talking about the concept of how to say no or yes. how to implement it into your life more assertively. Yep. So you've got another great topic which you were talking about with me during the week and I thought would be another cracker for the show. What's the headliner? The headline is The Two Wolves Within Us. I love that story itself. It's one of many of the old stories or old sort of fables that have passed on from generation to generation. It's one of the best memes. Actually, I see Panos. Do you know Panos? Yeah, I do know yeah, Panos. Yeah, Panos the Sleeping Boy. I did not know that's his subtitle. But... That's his subtitle, Panos the Sleeping <laughs> Boy. Panos. And the reason why we call him that, he's a good boy when he's asleep. <laughs> 
<laughs> he, <laughs> he has a story he, I don't know. He knows it. Uh, but Panos is a very spiritual young fella. He's got a website or a Facebook page called Living Light, and he often posts very spiritual and very meaningful quotes and memes and so forth. Very old head, very spiritual head on very young shoulders. Very well-centered guy. Got a lot of respect for him. I love him. He's a very cool dude. I've seen him post that before. I've seen many people post that before. Again, it's like one of those old Indian fables that the the wise elder tells the the grandson. Yes, I'm mm. going to read it out to story for people please, who don't know. Please have it. do. Yeah. May I just explain why this topic entered my mind? Of course. So last time we put a poll up and assertiveness topic one, but also what people wanted to hear more is about coping styles. Like, what do you do when life pushes you? What do you do when life is uncomfortable? And it was a little bit associated with, you know, entitlement, but I didn't want to talk about entitlement because we already did an episode about entitlement. So I thought I'm going to look at all the coping strategies mm. in a simplistic way because it's a podcast, you know, it's not a uni lecture. But I hope that people see that it's okay to have unhelpful coping styles as long as you're aware and you're trying to work away from them, but also that you're aware of them because they – a lot of things look innocent, but they're actually not innocent. And a lot of things, they don't look innocent, but they are innocent. So, mm. so I think it's a topic that I always found interesting as a student because it really helped me become more mindful about my own coping styles. All yeah, right. well, that's good. I applaud that. And I think that having been called on my own bullshit in the past, things that I thought were innocent comments, which were probably not, as they were pointed out to me. And I think you can sometimes have an opinion on something, like you can say something, have an opinion on it or even a feeling around it, but it's not the, I guess it, it comes down to perception of what, how it makes people feel. And there's another quote that I really like that says, people might forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. Yes, that's really important. Mm. But it also is really important. And I hope that's the outcome of this podcast that people understand why they do certain things. Mm. Because we very often in psychology talk about the behavior iceberg so on top, on the surface of the water, you see the top of the iceberg, and that's the behavior. But underwater, you see unfulfilled needs. You see, you know, how they were brought up, their environment, their beliefs, their thoughts, their emotions, and all of that leads to behavior. But it's really complex why mm. this behavior shows up. And once we understand the, the big picture type approach, it gives people insight usually. And I'm trying to bring that down Well. Trying to explain it a little bit better today. But maybe I start reading out the story so that we all know about what story we're talking about. Of course, please. Yeah, okay, it's, cool. it's a fantastic one. Okay, so I tried to research the author of this story and I haven't found one. So apologies that I don't name the author. And I know there are also different versions of this story. So this is just a version that I've picked. Um, and it's set around a campfire and it's an old Cherokee sitting with his grandson around the campfire and he wants to teach his grandson about life. That's the setting of the story. And the granddad says to his son, you know, a fight is going on inside me. It's a terrible fight and it is between two wolves. One is evil, he's anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. And the granddad continued, he said, you know, the other one, he's good. He's joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, 
humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. And the granddad says to his son, you know, the same fight is going on inside you and every other person too. We all have these two wolves. And the grandson thought about it for a minute and then he asked his grandfather, well, which wolf would win, the good or the evil one? And a common ending to this story is that the old Cherokee granddad says, well, the one you feed. Mm. But that's not the ending I have. Right. So I found a different ending. and I found Okay, it- I want to hear that one because that's the, that's the ending that I know. Yeah, that's the very common one. But apparently the true Cherokee ending is the following one. And I don't know if that's true, so sorry if I misunderstand that, but that's just what I found. Mm. And he says, in the Cherokee world, the story ends like this. The old Cherokee simply replies to their questions. If you feed them right, they both win. So you need to feed both wolves, the black and the white one, the good mm. and the evil one. And he explains, you see, if I only choose to feed the white wolf, the black one will be hiding around every corner, waiting for me to become distracted or weak and jump to get the attention he craves. He will always be angry and always fighting the white wolf. But if I acknowledge him, he is happy and the white wolf is happy and we all win. For the black wolf has many qualities, tenacity, courage, fearlessness, strong-willed, and great strategic thinking, that I have need of it at times, and that's the white wolf what lacks. I need the black wolf sometimes. But, you know, the white wolf has compassion, is caring, has strength, and the white wolf has the ability to recognize what is in the best interest of all of us. Mm. And he says, you see, son, the white wolf needs the black wolf at his side. To feed only one wolf would starve the other, and they will become uncontrollable. To feed and care for both means they will serve you well and do nothing that is not part of something greater, something good, something for life. Feed them both and there will be no more internal struggle for your attention. And when there is no battle inside, you can listen to the voices of deeper knowing that will guide you in choosing what is right in every circumstance. Peace, my son, is the Cherokee mission in life. A man or a woman who has peace inside has everything. A man or a woman who is pulled apart by the war inside them has nothing. How you choose to interact with the opposing forces within you will determine your life. Staff one or the other or guide them both. That's the end. That is the best ending to that that I've heard. Do you like it too? I, I like it because it elaborates further on it. It doesn't just leave the story inconclusive. So the other one... Although it sort of concludes, it's still a little bit inconclusive. I know that's a bit of an oxymoron, but the reality is, is it, is it finalises it where somebody wanted it to be finalised, but that takes it further and it gives it a better explanation. And it somewhat explains how the Chinese refer to the whole model of yin and yang. Yes, that's exactly what it's referring to. It's mm. like this balance. And, and, you know, I think... As a therapist, we very often want that people really can access this wise part in them because in the end, you need to know what wise decision you have to make for your life. And we also know in psychology and science tells us ignoring something in you never works. Like it just doesn't. Mm. Like if you, for example, have a really strong, repetitive thought in your mind and you try to ignore it, it will become stronger and stronger and stronger. So there has to be acceptance to actually be able to live with it. So so science really tells us to ignore it or to avoid it does not work. Mm. So I think it's a really wise advice to give us. And um, 
I thought I'm going to talk a little bit what nowadays science says about how to access this wise part in us, because there is no recipe to t- tell a person this is what you have to do to have the really best life. Mm. I've never come across a person that can live the same life as I do. I don't think that's possible. I think that you internally know and feel what's right. I know some people find that difficult and they're a bit disconnected from that. And that is where that book, uh, Lost Connections, Mm. was very accessible to different thoughts of what people possibly need when they're feeling disconnected from things. But I, I find that although we do things as a group sometimes, sometimes we do them for the wrong reasons, like we do them because we yeah. want to placate other people or we think that that's the right thing to do to achieve popularity or to, to achieve connection with people, whereas in fact it can make them, maybe it doesn't make them feel as, as happy as what you think it does, but it certainly might not make you feel happy, which is from conversations I've been having with you lately, I've been experiencing that sort of thing with myself with you know, you're trying to crowd please sometimes and just because somebody likes something, you don't have to like it as well. And if the crowd that you're with don't accept that, maybe it's the wrong crowd for you. Yeah, or if it's a mature crowd, it's okay. They can accept that too. Yeah, that's right. And I think it comes back to that behavior iceberg that we only see the behavior, but we don't know the other forces behind that iceberg, the Mm. bottom of that iceberg. And that's what we're going to discuss a little bit because just judging a person by that behavior is really, it's, how we do things and that's Mm. kind of like how we map life but it's complex there's so much more to it and I think these days there's also such a lack of privacy in our lives because everything is online and it's really difficult to kind of like have that inner peace these days to really access this wise part in us Mm. so to have time a time out you know we are always accessible we I've just read a study where we it it documented that people on average 150 times a day on their phone. So there's not much downtime anymore. It makes it really hard to listen to yourself and truly mm. know what what actually do you need, not what you want, because what you need and what you want are sometimes two different things. Well, see, you and I were born in a generation where we weren't tied to social media. Like social media came along in our life. Yeah. It wasn't in the life that we grew up in, that you were instantly handed a phone to entertain you and then realized how social media works and developed popularity through that there was another good it was a meme that i saw i like memes I love memes of life i saw a meme on social media funnily enough the other day that said when telephones were wired we were free predominantly what that says is that when i was a child we didn't have connections like this like this was science fiction thinking about having a phone in your in your pocket that you could facetime people it was all science fiction we were running around the streets. We were exercising all the time. You were out riding your bike. Like that was your entertainment. Your parents didn't know where you were. They weren't constantly tracking and monitoring everything you were doing. Like if you were out with your friends, nobody knew where you were unless you actually rang home or told your parents whereabouts you would be. You weren't constrained by what we are today. Like today you're very accessible and you can be found easy and if you – if you like something or or check in somewhere, then people know where you are. They know that you're not home. They know that you're in a location. They know who you're with. Even, for example, I know we're, I'm rabbiting on a bit, but my mum was speaking to me the other day and she said, oh, you know, have you seen pictures of your nephew? Because my niece had a, a baby not long ago. Thank you. Yeah, beautiful little boy, Archer, his name is. And I said, I see him all the time. I'm watching him grow up through social media. I haven't met him personally because mm. he's in Melbourne and I haven't been there for a while. But I've seen him. I've seen videos of him. I've seen – I almost see him every day. 
So I said to mum, I'm not missing out on seeing what he's doing. I haven't met him. I don't know him, but I know him. Like if you go back 30 years ago, that was impossible. Yeah. You would just not have that connection unless you actually met them. This would be our first time meeting and sighting of a baby or a toddler for the very first time. So, yeah, the world's changed. It has. And and I don't want to poo-poo social media totally because I met my husband on the internet and he's one of the greatest things that ever has happened to me. Like it does open opportunities as well. It's the same as the story you're telling about the two wolves. It's in exactly that same context because it can be absolutely fantastic or it can be foul. Yes. And one of the reasons the reason why I brought it up is because what we see nowadays is that people don't have much privacy. They don't have much time to really calm down or be bored or mm. or just have an introspective moment. You know, like normally before a lot of people in my generation would say, oh, the toilet or shower, I have downtime, I can think, I, be, I can be creative. But now we always, we can, if we choose to be in contact with things. And, you know, a lot of businesses are run on Facebook, like, you know, my business runs on Facebook. So it's interesting how we manage that. Mm. But what I'm wanting to do now is I want to tell people what the wise mind looks like, what it feels like, what you should aim for, because that is what you essentially have to try to get in contact with because a lot of our actions, they feel good and they might feel like that's the right thing, but it's actually not the wise part of you. It's just a part of you. Mm-hmm. Okay. So go ahead. Tell us what the wise mind does. Yeah. So the wise mind, to me, I always explain it like it is like an adult and a child mm-hmm. and they have two separate roles. So it encompasses both. And the healthy adult part of that wise mind it performs like adult functions, you know, such as obtaining information, evaluating, problem solving, working, parenting. And it takes quite a lot of responsibility for choices mm. and actions. And it makes and keeps commitments. So it's being held accountable. And it's really balanced because it pursues activities that are likely to be fulfilling in work, but also in intimate and social relationships, in sport in cultural service-related activities. So it's not just work and fun. So there's a lot of how are you with your social relationships, your intimate relationships, do you contribute to culture or sport? So it's quite a really well-rounded kind of concept. Mm. And it's it represents a little bit more the rational side of us. And with that comes the childlike part. And it's called the happy child very often. And a happy child is more an emotional kind of part. And a happy child feels at peace in a wise mind when your core emotional needs are really met. And it feels loved, it's content, it feels connected, it's satisfied, it's fulfilled, feels protected, praised, worthwhile, nurtured, understood, validated, confident, feels safe, resilient, strong, is adaptable, spontaneous and optimistic. So it's quite how you feel. It's quite an in the, in the moment kind of observation and when you marry them together that's when you get the wise mind so it's this balance between what's rational like what's activity based or with how you feel does that make sense so it's like a family so so one part is quite how you feel and the other part is what do you have to do to have a good life yep and what what areas of your life should you pay attention to Mm. and it's society at the moment is quite selective what makes a successful person. Like usually it's around work, it's around status, it's about money, wealth. But not many not many times you're being judged as a person. How good are you a friend? How good are you as an artist? Or how much do you contribute to that? It's quite selected at the moment. Mm. But a true vice part looks at all these areas. And it's interesting. So you can have 
a really fulfilled career, but all the other areas in your life are quite poor. And the idea behind the wise mind is that everything is in balance. So we very often know in psychology that people need to have their life built on a couple of pillars. Pillars are things that give our life strength and resilience and stability. Mm. And these pillars are usually relationships, leisure time, spirituality, work, values. You know, like you need to have more than one pillar. Like if you say, I'm a great friend, but you can't hold a job, that doesn't work either. If you say, I'm an amazing entrepreneur, but you're not a good friend, that doesn't also work. Mm. So it's also about having balance balance in other areas. Mm. And most of us, we usually have a, a tendency to focus on certain areas, but not all of them. And a wise mind is there to guide you really because you need to fulfill your values. And that's in regards to how you are emotionally and rationally. Does that, did I explain myself? I believe so. Do you have any questions? Listening to you talk, it's profound how we often in dog training, especially the network and the group of people that I'm involved in, we're constantly seeking, I guess, credibility and recognition for balance, being balanced, people who understand and preach and practice balance. So the story that you've originally led from, from the two wolves, and especially the alternate ending that you you read out before, I guess that meant a lot to me because I feel that that's what we're trying to say to people is that the two go hand in hand. They have to. They have to. They need to. And this is why it's frustrating when we listen to crowds and we're being shouted down by people who are saying that, you know, you can't do this because it's not ethical or it's cruel or it's, it's inconsiderate to the feelings of the dog. It doesn't make any sense to me. And it never really did because I kind of look how nature mimics education. And nature, by definition with education, is it's always concerned with the fact of finding equilibrium, somehow bringing things back to balance. Even though when I originally spoke about the whole concept of being positive first and people were saying, well, it's not really, it's still balance. I still do definitely believe in balance. I believe in equilibrium. I believe that when things are balanced, you find harmony. It might not bring everyone harmony because some people, even though most would agree that balance feels good, some people like to tip the scales a little bit in their favor sometimes. Not some people, quite a lot of people do. But as you're pointing out, Bertie, I think there's a lot of people that when they do get everything they want, do they really have everything they need and want at that time? And sometimes they find dissatisfaction in getting that. Like they still feel there's a hole inside them. I can give you an example. Please. So I was at a time in my life where I would have been looked at as super successful, you know, making good money, having a lot of status symbols. Like, you know, I would have ticked the boxes, right? Mm. So from a work perspective, which I adore, like I'm, I love working. Working for me is a very fulfilling role. I love it. I get a lot of joy out of it. But if you would have asked my husband, he's like, well, yeah, you're really doing really great. You're very tired when you come home. Like you usually need the weekend to prepare for your work week. Um, you don't really have the energy to do much beside work. And I realized I've neglected all the other areas of my life. So I put all my energy into that one bucket, right? Mm. So it wasn't balanced. I probably will always be a person that enjoys working. So I always will favor that bucket. But I have to learn to keep an eye on the other buckets. And I think it's also a personality thing. Like some people need just a little bit of a tip in a balance and some people need quite strong input. Like I... 
I think everyone needs to understand their own balance. So this is yeah. why you need to become really good at knowing, yep. well, what do you need? What I need and you need are different things. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Is And fundamentally, this is why books like Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus were written because even though we're still human beings, we're still fundamentally different in the way we think. And even within our own sexes, we still think about things differently. Oh, I think different to Narelle. Of course I, we do. Like we all are different, right? And that's that's the beauty of being individual is that the fact is, is that we all have things that are important to us that may not be remotely important to anybody else. Yeah. And that could be your job, your personal life, your religion, your hobbies, anything. It could be anything. Yeah, and, and also dogs have different needs. Like, for example, Luna has a very different need to Randy. Yes. Like like dogs also, and I think you need to have that wisdom that every dog has a different balance. Yeah, drive um, satisfaction. Yes. Hmm. And I think what, what I would like to talk about now is that we, as an individual, have to know what our unhelpful coping modes is. Like we need to know what our black wolves are mm-hmm. because you and I might have different black wolves, right? Like, oh, goodness me. What's a black hole? What are you a black ref- wolf. Oh, like I think you said a black hole. <laughs> no. I, thought, I thought, what? <laughs> no. No, I was going to say. I was going to say, when did you see my black hole? <laughs> oh, my God. Glenn. No. No, that's naughty. No, I'm talking about the black wolf. Okay, black wolf. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So your Lost black wolf. Black yeah, wolf. Your black wolf and my black wolf are very different. Yes. And we, But you need to know what your black wolf looks like and I need to know what my black wolf looks like. Yes. Right? And that's actually really difficult. Because sometimes it's grey, sometimes you can have a lot of benefits from having the black wolf in your life. Mm. And you need to know how you manage it and how you give it boundaries. But your black wolf changes in um, as you mature too. Yes, it does. And that's one of the things that I found is my black wolf as a young man was quite a considerable opponent back then compared to who it is now. Yeah, same. I've changed a lot. Mm. Like I think people from high school would be surprised who I am right now. We've talked about this. I'm sure you and I and Pat have talked mm. about this probably over beers or even as we've um, digested things in the podcast before. But I believe that as you grow older, I really think it's a 10-year thing with your brain, that your brain really, every decade, you're a different person. Same, same, but different as the Thai people say. You're still you, but you're different. And I feel that considerably about myself. Like things that I've... I think over a span of a decade, when I look back, there's things that are different to you. Like when you're a child, the things that are important to you and things that matter are not the things that matter to you as a teenager. And the things that matter to you as a teenager don't matter to you when you're 20. And when you have things that you're thinking about in the 20, they might matter to you, but they're different when you're 30 and so on and so on. I it just- can be, but some th- sometimes also it doesn't go away. And that's so as in therapy, we very often see that you can change a lot. But if a core unemotional need hasn't been met, that will follow you throughout right. your life. Okay, that's so, interesting. Yes. Yeah, so, and this is, I think, how we're going to make it a bit nerdy right now. So, no, I believe in that because it's something that we deal with aggression therapy as well with dogs. Yeah. So, if you have the black wolf in your life and you want to understand what your black wolf looks like, mm. we have to talk about, well, how do you get a black wolf? How does it become part of your life, right? Mm. And that when we have, when we say, okay, the black wolf stands for unhelpful coping mechanisms, it usually comes down to unmet emotional core needs. Right. So needs that you haven't, that life hasn't met you in your life. Yep. And they are 
they're really, really important and they're really fundamental. They're non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter if you look at a mammal or, an ad- or a human. We all have core emotional needs. Yep. And they can really, if they are not being met, they can have a huge detrimental effect to your well-being psychologically or physiologically. Yep. And I can identify with that. I'm yeah. following you well and truly. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see if it stays that way. Yeah, no, it's good. Everything you're saying is making perfect sense. Yes, and I think so sometimes Wendy's needs haven't been met it can follow you throughout your life. Mm. They maybe show up in a different way and you may be mature in the way you cope, but they can, if they're unaddressed, they can really have a life trap for you. Like, you know, they can follow you through. Yep. And I was looking um, when I prepared this podcast, I was like, oh, what model am I going to talk about? Because there's so many models out there and some of them are super interesting, but way too complex for podcast. So I looked into it and um, I want to talk about this model because in the end, you will realize why, because it's very, you will understand it because we use it a lot for dogs. Sure. And when we talk about this model, we need to focus on the needs and we need to identify and define what the needs are. And I picked a model that picks two needs because core emotional needs are the build up for any psychological welfare or well-being or person or just health. And the two needs that I want to focus on, they act as poles, like that. On opposite dimensions. Yep. Like North and South Pole. Yes, yep. exactly. Yep. And the first one is called attachment orientation. Mm. That has to do with connection, relatedness. And if they're not met, if uh, attachment's not met, then you feel lonely, isolated, and socially rejected. So attachment is one pole. Right. Very important. Yep. The other one is assertiveness orientation. That is when you talk about autonomy, competence, being in control. And you can't, they are inversive, so you can't have them both at the same time. The more you head towards assertiveness, the less your attachment will be lower. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. So the more you look for a relationship and being connected with someone, the more you will give up in autonomy, competence and control because your assertiveness will go down. So so we need to understand that one of them is really – um, relationship focused and the other one is really autonomy focused mm. okay and they're really independ- really really important because they are the basis for how we're going to react when we are under pressure in life and this is kind of like the framework for it and we can see that in dogs too like you know for example if you have a puppy that has poor attachment to the to the mom because the mom died or the puppies they're going to have problems mm. But when you have the other thing, it's also going to have problems, right? So it doesn't matter if you're human or mammals. They're equal. Yep. Makes sense. Yep. Yep. Okay. So let's talk about what qualities would it be if you would be on the pole of attachment, like if you would be 100% living on the attachment pole. Right. That basically correlates to connection and that means you're talking about acceptance, affection, appreciation, belonging, cooperation, nurturing, respect, safety, security, stability, support, feeling loved and seen and listened to and being um, understood. So all the really important healthy relationship kind of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you then would hop onto the other pole, onto the assertiveness outcome, assertiveness orientation pole, it would be all about choice, freedom, independence, space, being spontaneous. Also very important because that's how you live your own life. Mm. That's also assertiveness is also in that part. And because they're in a inverse relationship to each other, you have to be really aware that you balance them because if you're too much favoring one side, 
you your will tip. polar opposites. Yeah, mm. and you will tip, right? Yep. And and sometimes we head into a direction of a pole that feels good but maybe isn't good for us. Mm. So it's really important that we have the awareness that we have to keep them in balance. And the funny thing is that our body actually has a built-in alarm system. So we, our nervous system and our mind and our brain is wired to tell us when that doesn't work well. How do we identify with that? What's the sign? Well, the telltale signs, that's what I'm trying to say. What's the telltale emotions, signs? Yep. Anxiety, sadness, yep. anger, mm-hmm. frustration, disgust. Yep. Core emotions tell us this. And that's, you know, this is talking about Johan Hari. This is why we need to listen to them. Mm. This is why it's so important that we don't numb these emotions because they are a messenger of information. Yep. But our society doesn't help us cope with them or we haven't learned how to cope with them because it's a taboo and it's very often not handy, it's not practical, it's not efficient. But that's why if you numb all those uncomfortable emotions, Mm. you will also numb the comfortable ones because all of a sudden your alarm system won't work. So it's really important that we learn to not associate discomfort in emotions as something bad. It's just a message. Yep. It's very important. Are you familiar with the phrase listening with the intent to reply? Yes, but that's unhelpful. Well, it is in the in the aspect of what you're talking about because you're talking about listening within yourself. Yeah. And I think people are so preoccupied that they've lost the ability to listen full stop. Even when they're having a conversation with somebody, they're not listening to what this person says. They're not mm-hmm. connecting with the person. They're hearing words coming out of their mouth, but they're they're generating what their response to it, what they want to say, what they feel is important to the conversation. And this is something that I found has had to take practice within myself as well when I'm at meetings with people and I've got a point I want to make is not just saying everything that I think is important, but listening to the group that I'm with because that's important as well. You know, yeah. what they've got to say is also important. But I know we're talking about the internalization of listening to yourself and listening to those signs of of distress that your body is trying to say, there are things going wrong here, pal. You need to pull up stumps and you know start paying attention because some critical alarm bells are starting yes. to go off. So if you become a good listener, you're taking a move towards the attachment pole, which is really mm. important in a society, in a meeting and in a company. Yeah. Um, but also within, like as you're yes. talking about, it's a, you know it's, it's a not enough to say listen externally, but it's also listen internally. I mean, all practices of meditation and, and spirituality, like monks, for example, mm. they always talk about listen to your body. Your body is the temple. It's yes. trying to talk to you. If you shut up for long enough to let it hear nature and hear within, um, this is why I like conversations with you and people like Panos, because although people might feel, oh, this is getting a bit spiritual, it's not. It's actually, if you want to improve aspects of your life, these are simple steps that you can do to start making some enormous headway into yeah. fixing some big problems. Yeah, like it's so true because a big, and then we're going to talk about it in a second, is when you react to things to not feel those things, but mm. first you have to learn to listen. Yep. And listening is a process. It's a skill. And I think you're not the only one that has to learn how to listen. Like I had to learn how to listen. Everyone does. Everyone. And and to this day, I still have days where I'm a shitty listener. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so I think it's just really important that we start accepting, hey, if I feel uncomfortable, it's okay. Mm. Be curious about it. You know, be aware of it. Don't react. Just notice it. And try to see what's the message here. Maybe there isn't a message. Sometimes there is no message, but sometimes there is a message. See, I like that, Birdie. I think that's good. That point that you just made there is, and that's one of the things that I have to address in situations where I'm feeling distress about something is what's the lesson here? 
what have I learned from this? Rather than feeling so insulted or so wounded by it, I mean, which is going to happen anyway, but after you sort of get yourself together and you get your shit under control, is sometimes you need to sit there and say, all right, what did I learn from this? What's the takeaway message from Mm. this? And I found that rather than being so aggravated and reactive to things, often if I can actually look what could I have done better in that situation and that, that dealing, that relationship, whatever went wrong at the time, that's also been somewhat beneficial to getting over it and, yeah, and leaving your, it behind. It's your growth mindset. Yeah. With that mindset, you don't trigger that you're being stuck or that it's helpless. You go like, no, I, I can take control of it in a good way, like in an effective, proactive kind of way. Mm. But it's also... I think what's really interesting to know is also that it's okay to be uncomfortable in life. Life's designed to be sometimes uncomfortable. That's just part of it. Yep. Um, So become good at being uncomfortable. Don't go like, oh, something bad has happened just because I'm uncomfortable. It's just how it is sometimes. Or it's just something you have to pay attention to. Mm. And with this alarm system that we have that tells us, hey, something's not going well, it's really interesting how we react to this. And this is how the, the black wolf not whole, the black wolf. <laughs> the black wolf comes into play because we develop unhelpful or sometimes called maladaptive coping styles when we are uncomfortable. And I was like last night, I'm like, oh my God, I'm not happy with the podcast because the, the theory that I was going to talk about is way too difficult. Like it's too complex. So I went to the back to the original literature and I came across a really good animal model from Cannon that was developed in 1915, and you will know it. Maybe you don't know that's Mr. Cannon, who was American, and he was a physiologist at the Department of Physiology at Harvard Medical School. I'm intrigued now. I don't know if I know this or not. No, you will. Okay. I think most people will go like, I know this. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a book in 1915, and the book was called Bodily Changes in Pain, Hunger, Fear, and Rage an account of recent researches into the function of emotional excitement. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Cannon classified how we cope to the uncomfortable emotions and he classified them into four categories and this is why you will know it. He classified them into fight, flight, freeze and follow. Mm -hmm. We often talk about dogs and their fight, flight and freeze. Yep. Yeah. So what I thought it was interesting that he has a follow part. Yes. I've heard with dogs flirting It's the less before. common part of the discussion, but it has been touted now and then. Yes. So mm. I've heard, um, I think Hans Nestershock talked about flirting. Yes. I'm going to talk about them to, to just have the definitions there. Sure. So these types of coping modes are categories how we react when something is uncomfortable. So the first one is fight. Mm-hmm. So if we engage in these coping styles, our alarm system calms down. And for instance, if you engage in fight, it is a chance to win and become top dog. We call this the assertiveness way to gain autonomy, control, dominance and respect. So you're on the real, the other pole on the other side. Mm-hmm. Flight, the other one, is an active escape. In the human model, this means that we look for avoidance and engage in self-soothing activities. That's how humans would do it. Then you have freeze. Freeze is passively withdrawing by emotionally detaching, numbing or dissociating. And then the last part, which I haven't heard much discussed, is the follow part. And that means if your opponent appears to be really strong, like the person that maybe caused you to be uncomfortable, you really want to be part of this group. So you allow them to make you feel smaller because you feel 
that you want to have harmony, resonance, and a loving connection. So you surrender to them. Mm-hmm. You kind of like ignore your own needs. So this is the opposite of being assertive. And it's really difficult that sometimes we do these things without knowing why we do them. We don't know that, hey, I'm actually being triggered in fight. I'm being triggered in flight, in freeze, or in the follow state. And it's so important that you know what you're doing, what the motivation behind it is, because otherwise you might lose that balance because a good life, a life with vitality and flexibility is a balanced life. So sometimes, for instance, when I'm stressed, I probably would go into flight mode. I like self-soothing activities. Mm -hmm. I like to not feel. I like to numb myself. That could be that I maybe eat too much pizza or that I binge watch a Netflix episode or that I get lost in books. I just like that feeling of not having to deal with it, right? Yep. You can just forget about things and yes. just let the world go by. Yes. Yep. But that doesn't mean that this helps or serves me because if I look at my values, it might be, hey, maybe you need to change something. Maybe you need to look at why you feel this way. Mm. What caused this emotional pain of your core needs not being met because that's what it comes down to. I also like John Lennon's concept of that as well, that time that you spent enjoying something wasn't time wasted. It's all in moderation. I agree with that too. It's the moderation. I think it, it becomes a problem if it's too much. Mm. You know, like if you go like, I need to binge watch But that's unbalanced, days. isn't it? Yeah, that's it. And that's the exact concept that we've been hedging on the whole time is where we're talking about the problem with being unbalanced yes with falling true, out true, of true. out of finding out where your core is and being so left or right of field um that you're, you're tipping the scales too far so it's, un- it's an uncontrolled cascade after that it is and i think that's why we have to have awareness about it and curiosity to yeah. see why are we doing certain things yeah and it's quite interesting that certain emotions have a certain tendency to engage in certain unhelpful coping modes. Mm. So, for instance, anger usually drives us to fight. Disgust is not often – I haven't heard many people say, oh, I'm disgusted by this, but disgust is one of the basic emotions. And it very often causes flight. Or when we're feeling sad, we might withdraw. That's freeze. Or maybe when we're fearful, it pulls us more into a submissive side, which would be the follow surrendering side. And it's really interesting how we're going to balance that and how we acknowledge, hey, one of my needs hasn't been met. Mm. And I think because these terms are quite abstract, I've thought about, hey, what are practical examples of these modes? So fight. Okay. So something in yourself, one of your core needs hasn't been met, so you engage your fight mode. And it usually comes up as a self-aggrandizing behavior so that you feel superior, special, powerful, and you can act in quite an entitled, competitive or grandiose way. And some people would see the world in top dogs and underdogs. And there's little compassion for other people and it might be quite extreme, like it might get to a point where it's quite aggressive and you use threat and intimidation. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is... um, the trigger to this can be a trigger from way back. So you could have someone making you really angry and you go into fight mode, but the original trigger was way, 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 way back, but it's just linked to that. Right. So for instance, when I got my dog Luna, I had to advocate for space because she was human and dog aggressive. But I haven't learned how to be assertive to strangers who do not approve of me 
So that's something as a kid I did not learn, how to advocate for my needs properly with strange people. I was always told, be nice to everyone, be always kind. Turn the other cheek. Yes. So for me, it was really difficult to Mm. tell a person, no, we need space, please go away. And I got so angry because I couldn't do it that I probably became a little bit too aggressive. Mm. And that's what I meant in ages ago in a podcast when I said I nearly became entitled because I'm like, how dare you walk your dog on the same street at me? And when I said to people, I need space, I probably was more l- louder than I needed to be or there was no please attached. And these, people's were, these people were not there to make my day miserable. They were just walking their dog. So it's quite interesting what triggers that fight respond. Mm. Or let's talk about the flight response. This is anxiety related. This is when people search actively to be avoidant. So for instance, you don't want to feel negative emotions, so you turn them down and you engage in activities or you take substances that will soothe you, that will stimulate you or distract you. And these activities can be really pleasurable or exciting. So for instance, watching video games, playing video games, um, watching TV, Work, being a workaholic, like working really hard is one of those self-soothing behaviors. Yep. Immersing yourself into things to forget about. Yep. Excessive exercise. Yep. Internet addiction, compulsions, computer games, or excessive daydreaming, like getting really lost. Chronic masturbation. Sure. Sexual addictions. <laughs> sure. Porn. Yep. Porn would be one. Without sounding funny about it, there's actually a lot of problems with people who are overly addicted to porn. Oh, porn is, oh my God. Mm. It's such such a difficult topic because, yeah, where do we start on this topic? It's something that's not replicable in real life very often. No, it's a fantasy that it gives, especially young men, gives them a lot of, young women too, but young men, it gives them unreasonable ideas and what love and connection and relationships are all about it is entirely addictive because mm. you can have you just have to press a button and you can find what suits you in well, that it's moment. also it's almost like a blast of cocaine isn't it yeah i i don't know i think uh, i know it's, it's highly addictive yeah it's very dopamine endorsing yeah yeah mm. um i used to play when i was a younger guy I used to play this game called world of warcraft Mm. And I was very addicted to it. Like it, I think I don't know if I've discussed it here before, but it was like an, a complete addiction. So much so where it just consumed my entire day. Weekends were spent playing it. Like as soon as I was up on straight away, you know, I was connecting with people. That's how I was connecting and and finding approval. Was you know you'd you'd level up and you'd get your character to such a level, and then you'd speak to people that you've never met all around the mm. world. It was very, very intriguing, but also very rewarding. In the end, I realized I am sitting in a chair getting enormous. Um, I was stacking weight on because all you do is sit there and binge eat because you're sitting in one spot, completely immersed. You Like your eyes ache, your brain aches, everything aches. And the rage, the temper I felt when, you know, like if you try to do something and it wasn't working or somebody was interrupting mm. you in real life. In the end, I thought, I'm not actually doing things that I used to enjoy. I'm not getting out and walking around. I'm not spending time with my dogs. I'm not doing anything. So I actually deleted like it was it was very sudden, but I deleted it off my computer and I snapped the disc and I threw it away and I never went back to it. Wow. And it was it was hard. It's very addictive. It was hard. I felt like I cuz I I pretty much sacked everyone. Like it was pretty much like you know, moving to another country and never seeing your family again. And that's kind of how it felt at the time because I just said 
like everyone was shocked when I said, mm. I said, I gave everyone all my gear, you know, everything I collected and spent so much time doing, I just basically um, handed it out to everybody. And they were just like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going back to life, you know, like I'm going back to the real world to spend time there. And they, they were befuddled wow. how that could happen. And that's- um you. Sorry? Good on you because that's difficult it to do. Was, it was terrible at the time. I've got to tell you, it was actually terrible at the time. Mm. I felt so like I betrayed people that I've met and enjoyed spending, having long conversations with and everything. But I just had to stop talking to them because I thought if I start talking to them again, I'll go out and buy the game, I'll put it back in and I'll, I'll be back in there again. Yes. And, and- so I just had to, I had to delete them and forget them. And it was awful. I mean, I, I think I was actually quite emotional about it at the time. I imagine. It was terrible. It was yeah. absolutely terrible, but I needed to do it. And I understand how people can get stuck into that same trap with addiction. It was That's probably the only thing that I've ever really been addicted to in my life. I think it's, it's you know, it's also so interesting that we always know we only do something if it has a payoff. Mm. Like every behavior has to have a payoff. Yeah. And I think... Video games, especially the ones that you are in a community, are highly addictive because not only are you visually really immersed in something that appeals to your brain structure, it also is you have a connection there with other people. But clever people have been designing them because there's a lot of reward along the way. That's oh, how they keep you trapped in there. It's a dopamine. But, well, that's it. It's people who invented slot machines and gambling in Las Vegas, uh, the people that they employ to make kids addicted to these games. Like they deliberately addict you to it. Yeah. You know, you do something, you get a reward. But then you're looking at into the distance what you are as a novice compared to what you could be, you know, like if you put a little elbow grease into it, you can achieve these magical powers and you can Mm. be this powerful figure within the realm of the game and you might not be anybody significant or might feel that way you are but you might not feel that way in life but in this game you can be different like you can be a superhero and i think that's what people yearn for they want to be more than who they are may i ask you a personal question you can say birdie shut up of course (laughs) so sometimes when i had clients like that i wonder that computer game makes you feel really seen, being heard. You can do something really good. Mm. What do you feel like was your need that hasn't been met that you feel so attracted to being so immersed in video games? I could be anyone else but me. What was the heart being you? I didn't like who I was when I was growing up. Okay. I had a very difficult stepfather mm. and he squashed me a lot as a kid. And I also had a very overbearing grandmother who did the same. So I got hit from both ends. Wow. I got physically abused from a stepfather and I got psychologically abused by a grandmother. You must have been full with difficult emotions. Oh, really it was terrible. strong ones. Yeah, it was fucked. Wow. Yeah, it was, really, it was a really, it was a bad time. Wow. Um, don't get me wrong. I don't want to completely demonize them because I've got to say in both people, My stepfather was a weird guy. Like he was a very, very strange man Mm. in a lot of ways. And I know that there was a side of him that he loved me, but he was a problematic man because he wasn't treated well as a kid. Mm. And he passed that on and he took a lot of it out on me. I'm sorry Um, to hear that. Well, look, I am too. I'm sorry it happened. But I think when you look at that concept of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, sometimes you enjoy a hardship, but it can actually... It can destroy you or it can define you. I'm very glad it didn't destroy you. It did for a little bit. I think that's, mm. it's like the silly phrase that one of our prime ministers, Paul Keating. Mm-hmm. He Is once, he the one that can drink a lot? 
No, that's Bob Hawke. Oh. One of our former prime ministers, Paul Keating, said it was the recession we had to have when he talked about us going into financial recession. And although it's a silly comment, I often think about it in my own life because when I had depression, it was the depression I had to have. Um, mm. It was the collapse that was inevitable. And I'm kind of glad it happened when it did and, and how it did because it could have been a lot worse if it was prolonged and it sort of gained momentum. But, yeah, I, I kind of needed to have it. I don't like keep talking about it and harping on about it, but the reality is is that I'm a lucky person that I had a very short entanglement with what I had because I know people who have fought it intensely over a, such a long period of their life and they're still in a position where they just don't enjoy the fact that they're waking up every day to tackle another day. And I feel great sorrow for people that I know who have to deal with that kind of thing because I wish for them they could feel a lot better about where they are, but they just cannot. And you know yourself, Bertie, this is your professional career, something that you're very immersed in. And you there's no matter how you tell people, you know, just do this, just do that to get better. That's not the help that that person needs. It just does not work. It is not helpful in any way, shape or form. I think, you know, the longer you are in this field, the more you know that the relationship is the healing part. Mm. And yes, you can help people with strategies, but in the end, it is that they feel that they have a relationship, that they learn again. What is it to have a relationship with, mm. you know, and a therapist is essentially there to role model a relationship. It's, it's a it's a created relationship because it has boundaries and it's professional. Mm. But in the end, it's that you dare to acknowledge their needs, that you talk about the needs, that you give them the space to talk about the needs, that you help them getting them met. And um, I think this is really important because, for example, if we talk about management of depression, we very often think about thoughts, but there's so much more to it. Mm. You know, there's so, so much more to it and you really have to understand. Sometimes that is what a person needs, but sometimes it's not what they need. And I think, you know, in your case, it's it's very, I, I really want to say these coping mechanisms that maybe what, what I've just called as unhelpful, they're always born out of a need of survival. They are very good at the beginning. They're always there that people can march on. This is what the body does to survive. So we have to give them credit. Mm. They have a time and a place in their life. Like, you know, m maybe you needed that video gaming at that time in your life just to make have time to digest it and move on. I think so. Yeah. I think it was just, it was a necessary distraction. Yes. It was letting my mind think about other things that I needed to do. I mean, I was telling you in the car and I'm going to throw myself under a bus here, but when I was a younger guy too, I spent a lot of time taking LSD at the time. It was, it felt amazing. I'm not saying go out and do that. That's going to change your life and everything like that. Like I'm exposing a little bit of my soul here, but the reality is, is I did it. And I really enjoyed it at the time. It gave me the escapism that I needed. But, you know, I'm not endorsing illicit drug taking or anything like that. I'm not being irresponsible. I'm just saying that I dabbled in it and I don't do it anymore, but I did it then. And, and I really felt that it gave me a little correction. I'm just saying for me. Yeah, so some people it hasn't. It's done terrible things to them. But for me... I don't know why, but it seemed to let me internalize and, and analyze. It was like Tetris. It's weird saying this, but it was like Tetris. It seemed like shapes were falling into place that were so unbalanced at one stage. But I could see things more clearly in that state because I was in sort of like a flux of harmony at that stage 
where I was disheveled in the real world. The real world, like I said to you, I was trying to escape who I was. And I think that's why I became successful as a dog trainer because it helped me be a different person again. I'm kind of a person that knows what it likes to wear many different faces, you know, like be a different person in many different fields. And and I did that over a long period of time trying to discover who I really was and being happy with who I am. And I'm finally finding peace about that. Mm-hmm. Going back to your podcast we did last week when we talked about the no concept that was a fucking difficult thing for me to say no to people and when my colleague told me that story about let your yes be a yes and your no be a no that was a terrifying concept when I was younger because I thought if I say no to people I won't be popular around them yeah um, I won't be a happy complete person because they won't like me and I won't be yes, popular and that, common... that you know I need connections with people as much as most people do but I need connections with the right people, not with people that I'm I'm looking to just satisfy their need all the time. I need to find satisfaction in that. And other people out there need to find their core value, the thing that makes them feel at ease, gives them peace in their life, helps mm-hmm. them sleep better at night. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. And that's what I was working towards trying to correct in myself is, is not trying to be a, a crowd pleaser for the wrong reasons, but... I'm more about these days saying to people, this is who I am. If you like me, that's wonderful. And if you don't like me, what can I do about it? Hopefully that will change in time. But if it doesn't, it wasn't meant to be. Mm -hmm. Whereas before it was super important to try and make everybody like me. But that's not reality. That's That's fiction. And that's that's exactly like I think a lot of people have – or report positive experiences when they take illicit drugs, but the difficulty is how do you make it work in real life? Mm. How do you get those types of emotions in real life? Because it's an avoidance, essentially. And that's, I think, you know, if anyone listens to this podcast, if you feel like, whoa, I noticed that I'm doing some of these things, there is no shame in reaching out. There is no shame in getting some professional help. Because Not at all. Because they're huge topics. They're difficult topics. Well, look at it this way. Like going to see someone like you is like somebody who goes to gym. I know so many people, even Dave, my boss, credible guy, when he feels great stress, he goes to the gym. Mm-hmm. You know, like he goes I and does it. I was like him. Yeah, he just, well, he just says that for him it's his therapy, you know, and he feels so good when he does it. And for me now it's jujitsu. I'm actually mm-hmm. finding that dealing with a bad day, going to the mats is a good thing. I'm perplexed why I didn't do it earlier. It's actually really soothing to go out and do some exercise and spend time with people where there's no ego, there's no need for somebody to be the best in the room. It's just being better than the day you were before, slowly, incrementally edging your way forward into learning a skill. It's really nice when you're there and people are saying to you, well done, man, that's so good. You're doing better. You can feel that you're getting stronger in your technique or your you know, like I struggled to get away from you today, whereas last week, you know, it was a little easier and you can just see that you're making gradual approach, but not only you, but the other people that you're with, when you're seeing other people that are newer and they're coming up as well and you can work with them, it's overall gratitude for everybody. And it feels nice to be a part of something where everybody is working on helping each other, you know, and it's nice growth within, you know, it's important to have your own singular growth, but it's also important for growth overall too. And especially people that you're around and you care about that's as well. That's part of what makes life good is Isn't the community. It good? You're mm. right. That's, that's it's exactly, wonderful. Yes. 
And yet, just if anyone listens, there's no shame in reaching out. I don't. Like, th- I don't think so. A- I think it's it. It is better for you to consider it. My sorry. My my point before I started talking about jujitsu was, you know, some people go to the gym, but to exercise their uh, their muscles and their body, why not consider the same thing for your mind? I mean, your mind is effectively a muscle that needs to be exercised as well. And your heart and soul. And yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, you know, these podcasts are never there to tell you what to do. They're just there to create curiosity. But I think it's so important that we understand why we do certain things, you know. Like the reason I was once, when I had my first time of depression, I was really in, addicted to the internet, which was a new thing back then because internet was a new thing. Mm. But I I couldn't, I didn't study and I just spent hours and hours on the internet. And it was so soothing. Like I could escape everything. I could escape my problems, the pain I was feeling. And it gave me time to figure out how to tackle them. And I was lucky that I didn't get lost in it because there's always this risk that you get lost in these strategies and that you have a lot of negative consequences from it. Can I ask you the same question? Can I mirror the yeah, question yeah. that you asked me before? Yeah, yeah, like, sure. why, why did you want to do that? I was really unhappy where I was in my life. Like, mm. I think there was just so much discrepancy in what I needed and what was reality. And that was not because anyone did that on purpose. It's just my mum was really, really sick, you know. And mm. and I think that is just, it's just hard when you're a teenager sometimes figuring out what do I need and how do I get it met. And for me, the internet provided that because I just could, I love downloading music. Yep. <laughs> I love getting lost in, in, you know, video clips. And, and I loved talking to people from all over the world and just to escape because I always knew I wanted to move away. So it's, it's again, that, that you know something's not right, but you don't know, as I did not know what to do. And back then, I did not, I don't think there was even a psychologist in our area. Like I, I knew I wanted to study psychology, but I wouldn't have not known how to reach out to get that service. Mm. And there was also a lot of shame around that because in Austria, there's a lot of, we, ha, we have, as a, in Austria, the psychologists or psychiatrists, they were involved in horrible things, you know, horrible, horrible things associated with concentration camps, like, you know, or or, or selection of race or, 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 you know, like we had horrible things happening in our country. So there's a huge fear around this. And, and I remember when Plus I... Plus it's also seen as being sinful too, right? Um, probably, yeah, hmm. probably. Okay, I just okay, knew I remember, it was really I remember ashamed. My, I remember, sorry, Bertie, I remember my grandmother in the early days talking about how wicked it was to go and speak to psychologists because they're involved in devilish sort of practices. Could be. I definitely knew that I felt very ashamed of doing it. Like I I felt Mm. like I was a huge failure. And I remember when my first GP said to me that she thinks I have depression, I walked out of the room and I just cried because I thought that's the end of the world. What's the point? Mm. And that is part also when you are depressed, you think that way, but it's also the cultural, like back then the cultural stigma around that was huge. So, so I'd rather escape then because I did not know what to do. I actually felt relief when I got told I had depression because I actually knew what was wrong. No, I didn't. I yeah. felt I fought it. Yeah. I, I gave my GP a very hard time. I wasn't happy about it. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't happy about it, but I was happy that I knew what was wrong because for a long time I didn't know what was wrong. I just knew something was wrong. Mm. But knowing what was wrong was relief. Yeah. I'm glad that you had that. Hmm. 
I hope that I can make people feel that way because I there's nothing shameful around this topic. But that's, you know, culture. It's a conversation, right? It is, but culture yeah, influences thing. you. Yeah. Culture and, and, you know, I was raised in a very, very religious environment. As was I. Yeah. Yeah, very strict. Very, um, very strict. Very, very strict, almost militant. Very punitive as well. Yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. And I think that does shape Jeez, your we're mind. we're almost... We're again, we're to steal my favorite Thai saying, same, same, but different, but cut from the same cloth. Yeah, we have a lot of similarities. Mm. But so I think, you know, when you hear, when you listen to us and we talk about this freeze mode, this detaching, detach protector, ask yourself why. Because if you don't know why, then you might keep doing it and you miss an opportunity to change things mm. because you need to look at what need hasn't been met or what's, what you need to change. And I understand that this may be scary at the beginning or overwhelming or is uncomfortable, but in the long run it will pay off. Well, it is. I mean, I, I've got to be totally honest. There's sometimes where I don't really like talking about some of my vulnerabilities and I've shared some today. And some people might be surprised to hear that and think, oh, wow. And other people might think, oh, yeah, well, that's mm. normal. As they say in, in life, one person's trash is another person's treasure. <laughs> True. Hmm. There's another mode. Yep. And, you know, this is when you go into submission, when you, sub- when you surrender, when you have no assertiveness and you just give in to everything just out of fear that you miss out, that you're not acknowledged, that you're not part of the group. And it's really also important that we acknowledge when you freeze for instance and you really detach and you're really numb inside and you can't do anything that you look at that why are you so bored why are you so numb why is there's nothing happening in you what do you protect yourself from so it's a coping mode very often as well Mm. and I think the challenge is that I just want to encourage people you know and if you've been to the bravery workshop you will know the model very much it's the the awareness model with the water drop is that when you have something that triggers you that you stop you pay attention you start to regulate the emotions in your body not in a reactive kind of way just an observing kind of way and you have awareness and then you when you've done that and you maybe used to drop your anchor stretch or take a deep breath or whatever you do to regulate yourself that you then bring awareness to what actually happened am i reacting to this person right in front of me or does it remind me of something that happened a long time ago because that's like a chain reaction very often Mm. and I think that's really important to know that's pretty cool (laughs) it it is and I hope that people become more curious about why do I do certain things like why do I after a really long week why am I so needing to do certain things that I know are not good for me or that I know bring me away from values or things that would give me a more meaningful life with vitality what scares me what why can't i implement different things i guess that's something that's not so easy is because sometimes when you're dealing with that being comfortably numb Mm. and and lost in your thoughts sometimes you're not actually focused on that or thinking of it and i guess sometimes the only time that you may consider thinking about it is when a close and valued friend might bring it to your attention. I was just going to say that you need to then to have a good enough social environment that they can nudge you. Yeah. And in a caring way, you know, yep. in, a, in a way that you can accept it and that you know they come from a good place. Mm. And this is why 
Um, again, I know this is probably what I will hear, what people will hear forever is community is so important, but you need to be invested in that community. You can't expect that you have community, but you're not doing anything for the community. Mm. It has to be a give and a take, and that's the balance in itself again. And things can change. It might be part of a community, and then you go like, oh, I'm going to change communities. That's okay too. Mm. But it's important that we don't just always focus on what advertisement and social media tells us at the moment. Like, you know. I think I saw the comedian Russell Brand. Mm. And he was talking about his struggle with his own life. And then he was saying, you know, but then I kind of feel bad because I start thinking about how other people have got it worse. And then I go on to think about, oh, you know, the children in Africa who are dying and thinking could be worse. And then playing out the levels. I guess one point, I'm pretty sure he brought it up and it's something that I've thought about anyway is, yes, that's true. There are other things that have been horrendous that have happened to people. But sometimes people who have been brought up in those environments and cultures, even though they know that it's terrible and it could be worse, they've still grown up in that environment where it's relative to who you are. Just because you are, you might be living in a first world country, you might be in some ways privileged you might have everything stacked in your favor, but it still is relative to you when the shit hits the fan. And that's, I guess, is the thing where people burden a lot of guilt is they constantly, not not everybody, but people look outwardly and say, you know, look, oh, I haven't got it so bad. It could be worse. I could be this person. It could This could be happening. You know, I could have one of my legs taken off or something like that. Well, that's all true. But the reality is, is when you feel like shit, you still feel like shit. Yes. That was a struggle for me because when I was feeling mentally incapable at times, there were times where I was trying to justify that it could be worse, I could be one of these other people. But I still was struggling with Mm. my own shit. And people who are feeling terrible struggle with their own shit. I've even spoken to people here, NDTF students, who have been brave enough to share their story with me at times. They're still struggling with their own shit and it's relative to them. It's their struggle. It's their story. And they feel so guilty about that. They feel bad that, you know, this is happening to them, but somebody might have it worse. To sound like a broken record, it's still relative. It is. And it doesn't matter if you if you feel like someone has it worse, you still need to attend to your own wounds. Yep. You still need to, to listen to the pain, you know, like medication for emotional pain exists. And medication, I don't, I'm not talking about tablets right now. I'm talking about first self-care and the first self-care for emotional pain is slow down. Breathe in, acknowledge what's there, not how you want it to be, like really acknowledge what's there. And, and you know, in, in psychology, we have basic emotions, they're core emotions, and then we have social emotions, emotions that come up after we thought about it, post-cognitive emotions. And try to see if you can get past a post-cognitive emotions because post-cognitive emotions are colored by what you grew up with, society, judgment, mentors, like outside input really go like well what's what's the core is it is it fear is it sadness is it anger is it disgust is it jealousy is it happiness and when you can reach those things even if they don't make sense to you try to go like well would it say anything does it speak up is there a reason what it would say Mm. and then you listen you just sit with it and sometimes I tell people you can just visualize if it really hurts, but like some people would get a constricted chest or they feel a lot of pain. I'm like, just visualize that sunshine is touching it. I know this sounds really weird hearing on a podcast, but it helps. I see it every week. And it's basically acknowledging the need that you have, that core 
basic emotional need that we all have. Mm. And if you learn to acknowledge them inside you, even if you can't fix the past, but you learn to acknowledge it, should give you relief. I totally agree. And that's how you, to sum it up, is how you would strengthen the white wolf, you know, if you come back to the black wolf and the white wolf. Oh, we've just tied it all back in. This is, <laughs> this is the magic that we do on the canine paradigm. <laughs> Tie things back in and segue into stories of grandeur of somebody else's <laughs> past and then all of a sudden, bam, here we are again. Yes, this is how you would stre- <laughs> strengthen your white wolf yes. because you need to. Mm. But you need to also accept the black wolf exists. So you better get to know your black wolf. You better get to know, well, when is it showing up? Why is it showing up? What mm. triggered it? How do you manage it? What does it need? Do you need to skill up in certain areas? Is your white wolf undernourished? Does it need a pimp? Like, do you need to <laughs> a pimp? Yeah, a pimp up. Like, do you need to <laughs> need to do you need to invest something? How can you strengthen it? Like, you need to start to understand what is helpful and what is unhelpful in your life. Mm. Helpful things are usually around values, flexibility, vitality in the long run, because sometimes unhelpful things just feel good in the moment. But it's about the longevity of things. That's what I would encourage you to do. And if you don't know how, please reach out. You know, don't do it by yourself. I think that's the strong message in it, isn't it? That if you feel unbalanced and if you feel that you can't bring it back, there's no shame in reaching out to somebody and seeking assistance and guidance with somebody. I mean, having a mentor, having, having somebody to have or having a confidant that you can speak privately to and safely to. I think it's one of the most liberating feelings that you can have is that when you can feel safe and in a non-judgmental environment that you can be with somebody and you know whatever you say to them is within the confines mm. of that space. I think that is one of the most magnificent things that that's ever happened. There's no judgment. There's no regret about saying it. It's somebody who, even though they're paid to sit there and listen to you, they want to listen to you as well. And they, they want to go away and think about it incrementally help you find that balance again and bring you back to that core balance. Yes. And, and you know, there's no shame in, in getting a professional person involved because they are outside of your friendship zone. They, they are there for, to do that for you. Yeah. And that's where that non-judgmental environment yeah. comes from. It, yeah. And it's somebody who has training in how to understand that as well, which I've found very, for me, again, again, I'm saying, I'm speaking on my behalf. I didn't like it at the start, Bertie, when I first did it, when I oh, went unpleasant. and spoke to somebody. No, it was very unpleasant and mm. I felt agitated and violated when I first did it. The guy was asking me to sit down and I was pacing around the room like a lion that just been caught. And he said- So you went fight mode? Yeah, I was, big time. And uh, he was a very, he was almost like a an urban hippie, the guy that went to see. He had prayer beads on and sandals and, you know, his room smelled of incense and he had all Buddha- characters around he was lovely guy i was pacing around like i sat down at the start and i glared at him and i thought no i'm not going to submit to this and then i so what was it what do you know what need it was because it sounds like you you were worried about giving up your autonomy and your your i was scared shitless scared yeah i was terrified terrified i didn't want to be exposed and that was the main thing that i was afraid of is that if i if i give up this who am i I created a character that was going to be able to deal and cope with it. And if I gave that up, who was I? And how Mm. was I going to live in the world that I was going to be in? And I've spoken to other people who have endured that same sort of thing, but I didn't know what I was going through at the moment. Like I said, I was pacing around. I was ready to tear his head off. You know, I thought, if you say one wrong thing to me, I'm after you. Like, I'm going to 
I didn't want him to hurt me. You know, that's mm. what I didn't want him to do. I didn't want him to make me everything I thought. He was completely the opposite. <laughs> I started just asking him general questions about his craft, his trade, being a psychologist, and he segued me into talking about other things that, you know, like he used his trickery. Not really, I'm kidding. His calm demeanor helped me to allow myself to let my guard down. Mm. And then I felt, once I felt safe and I realized that I wasn't, it wasn't what I thought it was, it was just like a tap turned on full blast and everything started coming out. And it was almost like I was saying things and I was trying to catch them on the way out, but it was good. It felt, I think spending an hour with him felt like I'd, I'd run for 10 hours because I felt exhausted when I actually remember leaving for the first time I sat in the car I thought I just can't drive. I just need to like roll the seat back and have a snooze for a yes, minute because I was absolutely draining. fucked. It's very draining. It sometimes. was incredibly draining, but it was it was so liberating to get that off my chest. You know, like I thought I can't believe that I'd taken on that burden and held it like a ball and chain mm. that I actually painted like jewelry and kept it with me and felt that it had grown into one of my limbs where it wasn't. It was something that I could have unhinged but i just needed someone to show me how to do it that was the benefit of it wow Mm. Mm. i'm so grateful i'm so happy for that because you know that's amazing that's a really good outcome well and a very hard-earned one because that's hard process that's a difficult process it is and it's it's hopefully and to relate this back into dogs because this is really even though we're talking about the human aspect of it in dog training this is not indifferent than the stress people go through with a dog especially when people come and talk to me about aggression. Mm. They are suffering immensely. And especially if a dog has bitten someone or killed another dog or an animal or something like that, this is where I have to think back to my session and be patient and non-judgmental and allow them to understand that I'm there to help them. I'm there as as a service provider for them. I'm not there to attack them or judge them. I'm there to try and work them through a very difficult situation, which has become very personal and very problematic for them and try and reconstruct some sort of sensibility about what's happened and see if we can avoid the thing that they're fearing worse, which is putting the dog to sleep. Hmm. And it's a tough thing. It is. And I think that's, you know, why... I think a dog trainer is not a dog trainer. It's an interspecies relationship counsellor. At a level, yes. Certainly at a level. I mean, that's that's definitely a title that you earn in in time. And it's like the same thing with your job. I mean, you had to be very learned and skilled and and practice and apprentice under people to learn to become sufficient enough to sit on your own and do it with autonomy. And it's the same with a lot of dog trainers. And this is... Again, it's an it's a problem in your industry where there are people who are so unskilled who are giving out very, very important advice. And it's the same thing within a dog training industry where there are people who are very unskilled giving out very important advice, which is very poor advice because it's it's psychology in a can. And that is very dangerous. That's a yes. very significant impact that well-meaning people, and I know they're well-meaning people, they're good people, but they're very inexperienced to be able to offer that advice and that help because they just haven't been at it long enough. And it's hard to know when. Mm. It's hard to know when is the right time. And sometimes you're thrown into that and you have to deal with it. Like you're thrown into the deep end in your job and your career and you're here, you've got to do this now. Certainly when you work for businesses, they'll say to you, okay, you're ready to go, let's go. 
and you might not be ready to go and you sort of learn on your feet. You know, it's a, it's the school of hard knocks really. You, mm. You're thrown into it where you don't get that slow immersion into it and that's, but that's a problem in itself. Yeah. Hmm. Mm. I think there's, you know, on, an, on a macro level, there's a black and white wolf even in organisations. You know, you can, you can always look for where the balance is out. Like it's micro, macro levels everywhere. Yeah. Mm. I mean, you can find that example in most things you do. Yeah. Yeah. I do. Well, I think we really went down the rabbit hole today. That was probably one of the deepest ones that I've done. And you are a Jedi master making me feel safe talking about things. And hopefully people appreciated that conversation. I enjoyed it. It actually felt like a therapy session for me, Bertie. It wasn't therapy. (laughs) I know it wasn't. I know it wasn't. There was no expectation or design around it as being a therapy session, but it just, it's like sitting down and talking to you is therapeutic because you're a good listener anyway, just as a friend, regardless of your professional career, just as as somebody in general, you're a genuinely caring person. And I can see how you are because you get very fatigued by life in general because you just as a friend, you let you take on a lot of things as well. I do, but you know, I still have to get to know my black wolf sometimes a bit better. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I'm getting there. I'm just a slow learner sometimes. But I love being here because I think you know, I talking about authenticity again. I want to be a good friend, and I, I want that people also get the real message about what these things can be. I don't want to give them the ideal solution the whole time. And I think it's also really cool when they can hear people that they adore and look up to, like yourself, to go like, "Hey, this is how it is." You know, if you find yourself in the same situation, that's okay. I think it's a wonderful thing sometimes when you come through the other side of things like this. The experience that you have developed yourself, and again, you know of that concept of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And the other relative point is is pass the information on. You know, allow yourself to be somebody that people can come and talk to about it. There's been times where staff have talked to me privately about things, friends have talked to me privately about things, colleagues in the industry have talked to me privately about things. I'm not a therapist. I don't profess to be a therapist, but I can be an ear to people sometimes and I can also point them in the right direction and give them relative experience if if it exists. And I think that's for communities. You know, we're very tribal in the way we are Mm. sometimes. And I think that tribes did well when they had elders and people who sat down and listened to people and the tribe, you know, like the wise people in the tribe, the wise older men and women would sit down and listen to the, the younger generation. And they felt like they had therapy in the group and sometimes just by being an ear and being a kind person and giving people some time to talk to you and what I'm trying to say is is by making that time by giving that time to people it can be just the time that they needed to unwind something that's been troubling them for a while or help them to find the right path the path that's mm. the the incorrect way or correct something that's incorrect Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, I'm rabbiting on now, so it's probably a good time to wind up the podcast. Okay, I think thank you so much for having me again. It was an absolute pleasure, Bertie. Thank you very much. Thank I really you. appreciate you making the time to come out, especially while Pat's off gallivanting around in the US. I'm sure he has a stunning time. I can't wait to hear his stories and his you know, his podcast in the future. And I hope that we see each other soon again. Always. You're always welcome on the show. And I'm sure that there's gonna be Hopefully there's a topic that you'd love Bertie to come back and talk about. If there is, please let us know. We'd love to have her back on the show as always. Thank you. Thanks, Bertie. 
Well, that's it for another episode of The Canine Paradigm. If you like what you heard, please like, rate, and share. And remember, if you want to support the show, you can do that on Patreon for as little as $3 a day. Uh, not $3 a day, $3 a month, even <laughs> better. You can uh, help support the show. If you want extra content, we've got different tiers, $10 or $20. The different tiers get you obviously access to different levels and accessibility. But other than that, thank you once again to our special guest, Bertie, and co-host of the show for the last two weeks, Bertie Oshidi. In our next episode, Pat will be back and he'll be able to tell us about what's been going on. Today, I'm going to tell myself to turn the music on. So, Glenn, put the fucking music on. <laughs> <laughs>